Good afternoon. Thanks. And welcome to all of you out there who are watching online. We're so happy that you're joining us. And those of you who are here in person, we're very happy to see you all as well. I'm Nathan Boyette. I'm a pastor here at Annapolis EP. And uh, we are going to be starting our sermon series on the book of Acts today. So if you have a Bible or a device, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts 1, 1 through 5 today. We're starting this sermon series, and we'll be continuing it through the rest of the fall. We'll take a break around Christmas for Advent, and then we'll pick Acts back up in the winter and the spring. And so we will be looking at this book for quite a while in the uh, coming weeks and months. Acts is uh, a unique book in the Bible. It's uh, written by Luke, who was a physician, a doctor, and he was actually a close personal companion of the Apostle Paul going on many of his mission journeys, which is why later on in Acts it often says we, we, we in some of the accounts. Uh, But Luke was also a diligent historian who worked very hard investigating the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, as well as accounts uh, from the apostles and other early Christians, so that he could write a two-volume history called Luke-Acts. He wrote both of those books, and he wrote them all to the same individual called Theophilus, who was most likely a wealthy patron of Luke who had converted to Christianity. And Luke wrote the gospel and the book of Acts to Theophilus to help him understand what Christianity was all about, to help him understand why it was the truth. And so he wrote the account of Jesus's life ministry, death, and resurrection, and then the story of how Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire in the first 30 years of its history. And we are going to be looking at the book of Acts for the next couple of months. Uh, And these first five verses are going to hint at a lot of the themes and the things that we're going to see. It's one big, long, long run-on sentence, which was very common in Greek. The whole first five verses are one sentence, actually, in the original language. But it ties very closely the Gospel of Luke to the book of Acts to show that it's one continuous story. Let's read together and then we'll pray. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and that it is a comfort as well as a challenge to each one of us. We pray, Lord God, that today you would speak to us individually, each one of us, that you would speak through this sermon and your word what we need to hear, and that we would leave here comforted and encouraged as well as challenged to live differently. Please use this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If we were to look at history, we would see that history over the course of thousands of years has a great many huge empires that spread across the face of the earth. And if we were to look at those different empires and break them down based on how many square miles they were to have, we could come up with a list of the empires that covered the the greatest areas of earth. 
Number one would be the British Empire, which at its height had almost 14 million square miles. Second would be the Mongol Empire, which had almost 10 million square miles. The Russian Empire would be third, which had 9 million square miles. And then there would be a whole bunch of different Muslim caliphates that uh, covered the Middle East and North Africa and had close to 6 million square miles at different periods of time. All of these empires were won through power, force, and often ruthless violence, where the people who were in control conquered other nations and subjugated them as part of their empire. They oppressed these subjugated people and forced them to get in line with what those empires wanted to do. Another thing that these empires all have in common is that they did not endure. None of them lasted more than 100 years. The British Empire, when it covered that 14 million square miles, only lasted 40 years. The Mongolian Empire, 80 years. The Russian Empire, 50 years. And every one of those various Muslim caliphates did not last more than 50 years before another one arose and conquered the previous one. Humans who have built these empires have done it through violence and force, and it's never been able to endure. But Jesus, our great savior, the king of the universe, he established a kingdom that is entirely different. It started as a small group on the edge of an empire in a backwater, a little village, Jerusalem. And it spread throughout the world. 2,000 years now later, it's still spreading. And it's an eternal empire, an eternal kingdom, not built on force and violence, but on weakness and humility. Tim Keller, writing about Jesus' mission, says Jesus' entire mission was to take evil on and end it. But as we have seen, evil is so deeply rooted in the human heart that if Christ had come in power to destroy it everywhere he found it, he would have had to destroy us too. Instead of coming as a general at the head of an army, he came in weakness to the cross in order to pay for our sins. That's what we see here today in this passage. We see that the king has come. The kingdom of God has been established. And he is at the book, in the book of Acts calling his army to go and spread the kingdom as far as it can go. But he doesn't come at the head of a general. He doesn't call in the tanks and the bombers. But he calls us to go in peace and humility. And that's the big idea that we're going to explore today. That the king has saved and redeemed his people and his kingdom is triumphantly spreading. So we should join the work of the kingdom. The king has saved and redeemed his people. His kingdom is triumphantly spreading. So we should join the mission of the kingdom. The first point we're going to look at is that, is that of Jesus' finished work. And the second point we're going to look at is Jesus' foreshadowed work, or the, the Spirit's foreshadowed work. So first, Jesus' finished work. In these verses, we see how Luke makes note of Jesus' finished work of salvation, and that's a theme that comes up again and again throughout the book of Acts. Let's look together in verse 1 and 2. He's writing to Theophilus, and so he says, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. He says that I wrote about that in the first book. He says that I recounted all of Jesus' earthly life and ministry in the first book, and he's reminding Theophilus and us that we can't read the book of Acts in isolation from what Jesus has done before. This whole book is one big story from Genesis to Revelation 
And we can't just take the book of Acts and read it disconnected from everything else that's going on. And that's what Luke is saying here. And so what went on before? What happened? Let's look in verse three where Luke makes it very clear. He says, he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them, the disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is central to the gospel of Luke and to the book of Acts. This right here, this verse is central. We see him mention Jesus' death on the cross after his suffering, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He presented himself alive, is what Luke says. We're going to see as we look at the book of Acts in the weeks and months to come that throughout the book of Acts, Jesus' death and resurrection is emphasized again and again as amazing, wonderful, good news because it brings salvation, because it brings forgiveness. It's the best news that everybody needs to hear, no matter of what suffering and difficulty it brings to the person telling those who need to hear it. So let's go real quick through a couple different passages where the different apostles and Christians speak of this amazing news of Jesus's death and resurrection. We could look at Pentecost a couple of days after Jesus ascended into heaven where the Holy Spirit came down on the Christians and a whole crowd gathered when they saw this and Peter speaking to this giant crowd in Acts 2.23 said this, explaining who Jesus was. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter would go on on the day of Pentecost and tell the people who were listening how they needed to believe and trust in this death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the result was that hundreds of people believed and Christianity exploded in Jerusalem. A few days later, just a week later, Peter is again in the temple in Solomon's portico in Acts 3. And he's again speaking to a large crowd about who Jesus was and what he did. And we could hear him say, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And then again, just a couple days after that, again, Peter and John are before the council, the Jewish council, the leaders in Acts 5. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It's not just the apostles right after. It goes out through the whole book of Acts. Later on in Acts 10, we see Peter before Cornelius, the first Gentile believer, explaining how he was a witness of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then he says, the Jewish council, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. And then again, Paul who was a persecutor of Christianity and became a Christian later, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, from Acts 12 onward, is the story of Paul going from one Gentile city to another, proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection. And one example of that is in Acts 13, Antioch Pisidia, 
where Jesus or Paul said, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. These are just a few of the examples. We could be here for hours reading the whole book of Acts, and you would see that again and again. Peter, Paul, James, Stephen, Philip, so many Christians are proclaiming the wonderful news that Jesus died and was raised to life, and that this happened so that people could have forgiveness of their sins. The overwhelming message of the book of Acts is that Jesus, the Son of God, died for humanity's sin and was raised in victory, and that through belief in him, we can all have forgiveness of sins and redemption to a right relationship with the Father, salvation to his kingdom. And that's why in verse 3, again, we see that after Jesus was raised from the dead, for 40 days, he was with his disciples speaking about the kingdom of God, teaching him everything that they're going to continue to say in the whole book of Acts. Luke tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus was with them explaining how all the Old Testament, the whole story was connected to his death and resurrection. It was a continuation of God's plan of redemption. What is the kingdom of God? Bill read the reflection quote by Graham Goldsworthy, a a theologian who says, the kingdom of God involves God's people in God's place under God's rule. And Bill did some great work of reflecting on how that's happened in different times and places. In the book of Acts, we see that God's people are everybody who has trusted in the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. And where's God's place? It's no longer Jerusalem. It's no longer the temple. It's wherever they go with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them and submitting themselves to God's rule. And so for those of us here, where is God's place? Yes, it's this building. Does that mean we weren't in God's place back in March and April when we were all stuck at home during COVID? No, because it's the same as the book of Acts. Wherever Jesus dwells in the hearts of his people is God's place. Wherever they have submitted to his rule, is where he is active. God's kingdom, used in the book of Acts, is shorthand for this salvation that God has accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see through the whole Old and New Testament that God is accomplishing his salvation again and again. And we see here in the book of Acts that all the promises spoken of in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Acts bears witness to this finished work, the salvation that Jesus provides. Entering the kingdom of God is now by faith alone and the salvation that Jesus provides by grace. But what happens when you become a citizen of that kingdom? What happened for the people in the book of Acts? God's kingdom explosively spread out. They started out as a small group of just a few people in Jerusalem and they spread to Samaria, the ends of the earth. God's kingdom continues to advance throughout the book of Acts, and it's still advancing today. None of us would be here if if God's kingdom had not been advancing. Because you see, Jesus' salvation, his death and resurrection, the finished work that he has accomplished is the good news. And good news needs to be told to other people We all love to tell good news to others. When 
a dating couple gets engaged. They love to tell their friends and family, we're engaged, they have parties. They post it on Facebook now. They get so excited. The parents love to tell their friends, hey, Johnny's gotten engaged, he's gonna be married soon. Kids who have a really difficult subject and they pass a hard test that they've been working hard on, they love to come home and tell the parents, hey, I passed the test. I don't have to take that class again. (laughs) Bill can relate. (laughs) Um, When newly married couples get pregnant and they're about to have a baby, they're so excited to tell everybody. Now, this was way after I had my last child, now they have a gender reveal party and do a big thing. It's so exciting to tell people the good news. Buying a new house, getting the job you always wanted, even simple things like your kid learning to ride a bike. We just love to share good news. We love to tell people the awesome things that are happening. But the gospel isn't just good news. It's the best news. It's the news of how we were dead and now we're alive in Jesus Christ. It's the news of how we were slaves in sin, but now we have been made free by Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the news of how we are orphans, completely separated from God, homeless, but now we've been adopted as daughters and sons in Jesus Christ. It's the news of how we have forgiveness and salvation from our sins, and our record is wiped clean. It's the news of how we have been restored to a right relationship with our creator, the relationship which we long for and desire. It's good news about how we can have unity and peace with other men and women and no longer have to be divided in personal relationships as well as in our society. The good news, the best news, needs to be told. It demands to be proclaimed. And that's why we see the apostles and the Christians in the book of Acts again and again, going into the most uncomfortable, difficult situations where they're beaten, stoned, and rejoice to tell that good news and proclaim it. Do you still remember when you first became a Christian? When you first realized that Jesus had died in your place, when he had sacrificed himself so that you might have a relationship with the Father? Do you remember how that made you feel? How the joy that you had and how you wanted everybody else to know? Some of you know my story and how before I became a Christian, I was incredibly depressed, maybe even suicidal. And in college, I finally understood the truth that my parents again and again had been trying to tell me, that Jesus loved me and had died for me, and I was saved. And it was like a light switch had gone off. I was filled with so much happiness and joy, and I just wanted everybody to know. And my roommate, who was not a Christian, got pretty sick and tired of hearing about it. (laughs) But I was so excited to tell him excited to tell everybody in my classes, excited to tell random people that I sat down at the dining hall tables with because I was happy to know that God loves me and had forgiven me of my sins. And I wanted other people to experience that awesome, amazing news and feeling. Maybe you have never believed in this good news. Maybe you can't relate to that. I invite you, explore what this has to tell you. Search out the good news that the gospel contains Talk with the person that came, you came here with. Talk with me. I love to talk about this with people. Those of us who are part of God's kingdom now, we need to live differently. We need to proclaim this good news. We should want to tell this best news to everybody and anybody can, that can hear. Maybe you don't feel comfortable. Maybe you don't know how to do it. The reality is that most likely you will do it wrong. I certainly did it wrong a number of different times. 
And often God uses us despite ourselves because we don't all need to be an amazing evangelist like Billy Graham. What we need are genuine relationships with other people where we share the amazing news of who Jesus is and what he did for each one of us. So I challenge you, I encourage you to think who are the people that God has placed in your life who he wants you to share this amazing good news with? Are you praying for them? Are you intentionally building better relationships with them? Are you looking for opportunities to explain the hope that's in you that they don't have? Now, another thing some people might question is if Jesus has finished this work of salvation, then what about the law? Can't we just live however we want? Why do we need to be part of this kingdom that's advancing? Why do we need to share the gospel? Nathan, why do we need to do anything except for just enjoy the benefits? Yes, Christ has finished his work of salvation, and now we are saved and can transform, are transformed and can live lives of love, but Christ did not do away with the law. He's enabled us to live the law at its fullest expression by loving God and loving our neighbor. You see, during Jesus' day, the Pharisees were excellent at keeping the law. They did not murder. They honored their parents. They did not commit adultery. But Jesus pointed out that they failed to keep the heart of the law because while they may not have committed murder, their hearts were filled with anger. While they may not have committed adultery, their hearts were filled with lust. See, the problem is not that we can't keep these artificial rules or even the rules that God has given us. The problem is that we have a heart problem and the law points to the deeper issues. We need to be transformed. And in Jesus' salvation, his death and resurrection, we are transformed. And that's why Acts 1, 1 through 5 points to the other part of the solution, the foreshadowed spirit's work, the fact that he doesn't leave us alone to do this on our own. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Look at me in verse 4 to 5 where Luke goes on and explains to Theophilus, while staying with them, while staying with the disciples, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What is this promise of the Father that he is speaking about? We need to go back and look at Luke 24, 49, where Luke had explained that Jesus said to his disciples, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We need to look at other gospel accounts as well to really understand what he's talking about here. We can see most clearly in the account of the Last Supper in John 14 through 17, where Jesus sat down with his disciples over the Last Supper before his death and explained in detail how he was going to send a helper, a comforter. John 14, 15 to 17 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom you cannot receive, because it neither sees, uh, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then later on, on that same night in John 16, he continued, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will speak, not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. These are just a couple passages where Jesus speaks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom he and the Father will send to be a helper and a comforter to the disciples and the Christians after Jesus' death and resurrection. The work of the Spirit is a huge theme in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 57 times in the whole book. Kent Hughes, a pastor, explains how the book of Acts chronicles the spreading flame of the Holy Spirit. 
It is also a book with a splendid theme, tracing the work of the Holy Spirit through the birth, infancy, and adolescence of the church. The book of Acts title could well be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts forms the perfect counterpart in contrast to the Gospels. In the Gospels, the Son of Man offered his life. In Acts, the Son of God offered his power. And so that's exactly what we see. We're going to see in the coming weeks and months how in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit gives the disciples power to do exactly what we were talking about earlier, to proclaim as boldly as they can the finished work of Jesus Christ despite the suffering and the persecutions that they endured. Let's look at a few passages in Acts that highlights this. In Acts 1.8, which we're going to look at next week, we're going to get to hear from Michael Densmore, one of our missionaries. He's going to tell us about Acts 1.8, where we see the Great Commission of Acts explained. In Acts 1-8, Jesus says to his disciples right before he goes up to heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus told them, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you power to be my witnesses. In Acts 2, we see exactly that. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples, and the result is an explosive growth in the church as hundreds of people on that day come to know the Lord Jesus and join their fellowship. And in the weeks to come after that, thousands of people in Jerusalem join the early church. We could go on and in Acts 4, 31, after Peter and John were released from imprisonment, all the Christians gathered together and prayed. And we read in 431, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And the verses immediately after that talk about how hundreds of people again came to know the Lord and were living in community together. As the gospel is proclaimed from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world, we see the Holy Spirit coming to different groups of people. First in Pentecost, we saw it come to Jews. Then later, Philip and other Christians go outside of Jerusalem because of persecution, and we see them go to Samaria, where people who were slightly related to the Jews but weren't exactly Uh, The same become Christians and they receive the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts 10, we see Peter proclaiming the gospel for the first time to Cornelius and the other Gentiles. We see the Spirit given to the first Gentile believers. Let's read together in Acts 10. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. We see here how as the gospel spreads throughout the world, the Holy Spirit goes with it and identifies those who are now part of the community, part of God's kingdom. We even see that the Spirit is guiding different apostles on different occasions to specific people who he wants them to share the gospel with. The Spirit guides Peter to the house of Cornelius and the first Gentile believers. The Spirit guides Philip to share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And later the Spirit guides Paul to a whole bunch of different cities across the Mediterranean world where he shares the gospel with people. The Spirit continues throughout the book of Acts to guide the church and help them to live in unity despite being a multi-ethnic community that had animosity towards each other, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Samaritan. That's why in Acts 15, during the Jerusalem Council, we see how the Holy Spirit guides them and how they can live together in unity. There's just a couple of passages and verses that we could show you, but hopefully you have seen how the Spirit is a driving, powerful force in the advancement of the church and the kingdom of God in the book of Acts. 
See, the work of God wasn't done when Jesus died and was raised to new life. That was just the beginning. And the book of Acts shows how God, through the Holy Spirit, is still active as God's kingdom is spreading throughout the world. Who is the Holy Spirit? Unfortunately for us in modern America, we too often neglect him. Sometimes we even, it even feels like that we as Christians demote him so that he's not part of the Trinity. Too often we act as if he's an impersonal force. We don't understand that he's actually the third person of the Trinity, God himself. The Holy Spirit points to the wonderful, amazing truth that God himself has dwelled inside each one of us. The whole story of the Bible shows how God wants to be with his people. Ever since Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were expelled, God wants to be with us. And the Holy Spirit dwells inside of each one of us if we have become Christians. Kent Hughes writes that the gospel models the Christian life as lived by the perfect man. Acts models it as lived out by imperfect men. And I agree with that. Acts shows us how imperfect Christians live out the Christian life. But I would add that Acts models how the Christian life should be lived by imperfect men and women in reliance on the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to rely on the Holy Spirit? We might think of it with this analogy. It's like air in a balloon. A balloon without air is lifeless, limp. It just flops around. It doesn't have the shape of a balloon. It looks nothing like what most of us think of when we think of a balloon. Without air on the inside, a balloon falls over. It's deflated. It doesn't have that balloon shape. You can't bounce it in the air. If you try to bounce it, it'll just stick to your finger or maybe fall on the ground. It's useless. Just like a balloon needs air to be a balloon, we need the Holy Spirit to be a Christian. We need his assistance, his help. Without him, we're lifeless. Without him, we're limp. Without him, our life is deflated and looks nothing like the Christian life should look. Reliance on the Holy Spirit is essential for Christian life. We are imperfect men and women living in a broken world. We are unable to live as Jesus did on our own. But he hasn't left us alone. He's given us the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to empower us, to give us help. But we need to rely on him. We need to seek his help. What does that look like? It looks like walking in the Spirit day by day. This is spoken of in many different books of the Bible. Galatians chapter 5, Paul writing to the Galatians in 5.16 says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he goes on and talks about the fruit of the Spirit and how they're produced in our hearts. And he concludes with, in verse 25, he concludes, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So he encourages them. You have life by God's gracious gift of the Spirit. You've been given salvation. Don't then think that you need to rely on yourself. Rather rely on him. Too often, though, we try to rely on ourselves in the Christian life. We think that we are saved by grace and then we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and continue on in the Christian life by our own effort and work. Instead, we need to turn in humility to God and acknowledge that just like we couldn't save ourselves from our sin by ourselves, we can't live the Christian life by ourselves without his help. One of my mentors in college talked to me about the concept of spiritual breathing. Maybe some of you are familiar with this. It's not some new age weird thing. No, I'm talking about prayer. 
where through the process of prayer, we do the simple thing of relying on the Holy Spirit. Just like we need to breathe every second to live, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit every second to live the Christian life. We breathe out, we confess and repent our sin. We acknowledge that we have failed. And then we breathe in, humbly surrendering our control to God, humbly relying every day on the Holy Spirit, asking for strength and grace to live the way he wants us to. This is essential to the Christian life, confessing our sin and relying on the Holy Spirit to give us strength. In conclusion, the book of Acts is the next chapter in the grand story of God's worldwide redemption. God has been working since the time of Adam and Eve, since Genesis 1, to bring salvation to all the world, to extend his kingdom to every sphere of life. And we see that in Jesus' incarnation, ministry, his life, his death and resurrection, salvation has finally come. But the book of Acts shows us that it's not concluded. Salvation has been secured, but the work of telling everybody is still ongoing. And that's going to happen as Christians imperfectly live out their lives relying on the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts concludes in chapter 28. I'm going to spoil the ending for all of you. In chapter 28, with Paul, one of the greatest apostles, living in Rome for two years, proclaiming the gospel to everybody who wants to hear it. Christianity went from just a handful of people in this backwater town on the edge of the empire in 30 short years to being in the main place, the big city, the capital of the Roman Empire, and Paul is boldly proclaiming the gospel. That's the message that the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, wants you to hear, that Christianity is triumphantly spreading. But Acts doesn't end. There could be an Acts 29, an Acts 30, and Acts 2000, because Christianity is continually spreading and advancing. The Holy Spirit is still at work today. It's here at work in Annapolis. It's here at work in the Church of EP. As we gather today, we are also here to celebrate the Lord's Supper, a reminder of Jesus's finished work, his death and resurrection. As we come here today, we're reminded that our Lord did not leave us without encouragement and hope. We heard how he gave us the Holy Spirit. He also has given us the sacraments by which we can be encouraged and strengthened in our heart, reminded that Jesus died in our place. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. For those who have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith, we welcome you. Come, eat, drink, be encouraged and strengthened in your faith. If you are not a Christian, we're so happy that you're here. We're so happy that you would feel welcome to come into our presence and hear these things that we're talking about. But I encourage you not to take this. This is a thing that we would encourage you not to do because it would not be genuine but please come and talk to me afterwards. Let me pray, and then I will uh, bless the elements. Father God, thank you, Lord, for your salvation. Thank you that you have died in our place, taken our sins away from us. You were raised to new life, and we also have been raised in you. We have your salvation, and we have been forgiven, and now we can come into your presence, your sons and daughters, forgiven and restored. We come before you acknowledging that though we are saved, we still fail day by day. We do not live up to the holy life that you call us to live. We confess, Lord God, that this week we have not loved you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
who confess, Lord God, that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not worshipped you as we should. But we thank you that even though these sins are real and true, you have forgiven us, you have washed us and cleansed us, and we can come to your table and be reminded of your forgiveness. Pray that you would bless this time, Lord God, and help us to be strengthened and encouraged.